Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. If you have your copy of God's Word, you can turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning as we continue our study through Paul's letter, his first inspired letter to the Corinthian church. We, um, we just began to dip our toes into this chapter last Lord's Day, looking at verses 1 to, se- 1 to 7, really, and... Um, And the whole chapter begins in verse 1 with Paul kind of pivoting by saying, now concerning the things which you wrote. So from this point on, and he'll say this many times as we get into the subsequent chapters, he is answering uh, questions, uh, the handful of questions that they have written to him. Somehow, some way, through some messenger, they had sent word to Paul with questions. And uh, what they got in response was this letter. Now, the first six chapters were a lot of correction. I don't think they were asking questions about any of that stuff, but Paul offered up what was most important for them there. But in response to their questions, now what we see in chapter 7 and following are his uh, his answers in no real particular order. I don't think there's any real um, way to discern the order, per se, but uh, they were answering, he's answering questions that they wanted to know about. Um, The first uh, six chapters were a lot of um, confrontation, but in the last chapters here, uh, there are a tr- there's a tremendous amount of counsel and instruction for the church, and um, much love is is sown into both the correction and the counsel. And we need to understand that uh, they didn't have, if you remember, they did not. First Corinthians is one of the earliest books in the New Testament. They didn't have all the New Testament. As they had questions, um, they needed apostolic instruction. They need apostolic answers. And Paul was their spiritual lifeline to help them navigate life as disciples of Christ in a dark world. And so as he writes to them here, we notice a real shift in tone in the chapter 7 and following. Uh, far less confrontation, far less combative, and far more um, more patient, a lot less authoritative, and not in the sense of it's not authoritative for us, but just a lot less heavy-handed in the way that he communicates what he says. There's a lot fewer do-you-not-knows in these chapters, and him calling them spiritual infants, uh, like he does in chapter 3, and a lot more, this is in my opinion, or I say this by way of concession, not of command. These Remaining chapters, then, are Paul teaching and instructing the church, but he's also, and this is important, applying God's wisdom to the various circumstances of life as they, as they navigated life in Christ. And we need to keep that in mind as we read and study and, and, and even think through some of these things in, the next, uh, in these next few months. Uh, sometimes it can be hard for us to switch gears if, um, if there's one thing that I've learned over the last couple of years through all the turmoil of COVID and everything else in our churches and talking with other pastors and friends in ministry is that God's people on the whole don't do well with it depends. They really don't do well with gray. They like, uh, we like black and white. And I confess I'm in the same boat. I like things to just be cut and dry. Just tell me what to do or not do. Tell me who's right and who's wrong on these issues. Um, but unfortunately, uh, life isn't as um, uh, monochromatic. It's, it, life is complex. And the scriptures, they do give us, and this is not to any way to undermine the, the, the sufficiency of scripture, but the scriptures do give us everything we need for life and godliness. I believe that. The scriptures affirm that. But it doesn't tell us everything about everything. In other words, <clears throat> there, isn't, there isn't an answer to every little thing that we might have uh, laid out, a question that we might have in the scriptures. There are some areas of life that are not black and white. There are some areas of life that are gray, and we'll get into that as we get into chapter 8. Um, and beyond that, even if it were straightforward, There are Christians around us wherever we go, in a small church, in a large church context, there are always Christians at varying degrees of maturity. 
There are Christians, some are much more uh, attuned to the Scriptures. They've walked with Christ much longer, and so their knowledge and their, their ability to distill and think through the issues that, are, that the Scripture addresses, that happens much quicker and much more clearly for some. And some have a more sensitive conscience than others. And, uh, and that's important to understand. And, and all of those things are okay. And what we need to understand then is that the unity that the Scriptures affirm, that Paul affirms that we ought to have in the church, is not uniformity. It is not uniformity where everyone thinks exactly the same way about every little minutia of, the, of life, which is a lesson we need to continually shepherd our hearts back to. As Paul says in, later on in chapter 12, in verse 14, he says, "...the body is not one member, but many." And then he goes on to say, if we were all one member, where would the body be? If we were all hands, that would be weird, first of all. But the reality is that, that we're not. He says, are, all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, all are not teachers. And the implication, of course, is that different people are gifted in different ways, and therefore we can't all be the same and we aren't all going to have exactly the same gifts. We're not all going to come to the exact same conclusions on certain uh, secondary and tertiary matters. And that's okay. That's okay. And that's especially applicable to this whole issues uh, that we're taking up in chapter 7, which are issues of singleness and marriage, marriage and divorce, divorce and remarriage, because those things require wisdom. They require tremendous wisdom to sort out it did then and it does now. So Paul attempts uh, here in chapter 7 and following to lead us down the path of wisdom to help us understand those things. There's something in this chapter for everybody. There's something for married folks. There's something for unmarried folks. There's something for those who have been divorced <clears throat> There's something for widows and widowers. There's some for those of you who are in marriages where your spouse is not a Christian. You name it, Paul addresses it in this chapter. His, his, his counsel is scattershot across the whole cross-section of the church. And it becomes extremely helpful then to guide us into God's will on these things. And of course, I do wish at times he said more, or he went into more detail, or he clarified terms a little bit more clearly. But we have what we have, and so we have to look to the other scriptures as well to see God's will and to come to those conclusions. But the lingering question that, that rises out of chapter 7 is this, and this is their question to him, uh, what do we do now that we are disciples of Christ? Because life is totally different for them now as disciples. And the questions that they have are questions like, should we get married if we're single? Or should we ever uh, get divorced? Uh, what if our spouse isn't a Christian? What if we were divorced, which is very common then, just like it is now, can we ever remarry? And um, if so, to whom and under what circumstances? And these are all the questions that are swirling around in their minds and Paul's answer to those questions, for the most part, in chapter 7, his answers to those questions are, it depends. <laughs> it depends if you should get married or not. It depends if you should ever be divorced. It depends if, you're, um, you, know, if you have been divorced, if you can remarry. And, and it depends on who you want to remarry and under what circumstances. In other words, it just depends. It depends on your individual circumstances and what the scriptures say in different situations, and it sometimes requires great uh, wisdom and insight and counsel. So last week, we looked at verses 1 to, se 1 to 6, really, is where we spent most of our time, where Paul reminded us of the importance of physical intimacy between a husband and a wife and marriage. They had written to him in chapter 7, verse 1, and they had written, not him, he's, they said this, and he's quoting it, they wrote him and said, Paul, is it good for a man not to touch a woman? And his response was what we see in verses 2 through 5. They were including in that statement both husbands and wives in marriage. And they had, uh, there were a group of people in the church who were considered themselves spiritual. They thought they had the Holy Spirit, and, and they did, but they were so heavenly minded, they believed that true Christian maturity demanded depriving yourself of everything related to this physical world, um, even to the point of depriving yourself of 
intimacy with your husband or wife. Their thinking was, Jesus teaches in the Gospels that um, in the age to come, they're neither given or married nor given in marriage. And we've, in some kind of inaugural way, entered into that life to come by the Spirit now through faith. So why shouldn't we be like the angels now? That was their thought process. Because, and then beyond that, they figured the body, physical body, doesn't count for anything. But what we learned is that marriage is a one flesh relationship and that it involves a spiritual coming together, a social coming together, and just as importantly, a physical, an ongoing physical union. And the Corinthians had missed that boat entirely. They were confused, and the result was husbands and wives abstaining from all intimacy with their spouse and wrongly assuming that what Christian maturity necessitated was abstinence. What we learn in verses 1 to 6 is that for a husband and wife, God intends just the opposite. Just the opposite. Marriage is a sacred bond. We said that it's characterized by permanence and mutuality, exclusiveness, and physical intimacy. And that's especially important for a husband and a wife. We learned about God's good design for oneness in marriage through our physical bodies. And we talked about the reasons that the scripture gives for it, why it's good. And we also thought in detail about some of the pitfalls that can happen when it comes to intimacy in marriage. And then we ended last time in verse 7. And the, with all this talk of marriage and the blessings of intimacy and fighting against immorality, the question might have come up, well, does that mean everybody should be married? Like anybody and everybody. And Paul's answer to that question in verse 7 sets the stage for what he's going to say in the rest of the chapter. Because in verse 7 he says, Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. So Paul's answer to the, to the maybe uh, question on the back burner in their mind of should everyone get married is not necessarily. Not, not for sure. Not everyone has to or should be married. There is nothing wrong with singleness if that's where God has placed you. And Paul makes clear then those who have this gift, and he calls it a gift from God, of singleness, that is a great thing. He says, I wish you were like me. But the reality is, many of us don't have that gift. And therefore, most of us will be married at some point in our lives. And that is good and right and holy. And if you're not married, that is good and right and holy as well. So we said earlier that there's something in this chapter for everybody. So if you found your mind wandering last week, take heart, because Paul probably has something to tell you this morning. He has a word of wisdom for you from uh, this passage that we're going to look at in verses 8 to 16. And if it's not for you directly, it certainly will be for you to minister to others with wisdom and insight. So um, we need to look at verses 8 to 16 this morning. So let me just read these verses. We're not going to quite get to the end. This is going to actually be two parts because I want I want to spend some more time um, outside of the text next Sunday, unpacking verses 15 and 16. Uh, But Paul says this, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. And yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? So in these verses, 8 to 16, Paul has something to say about singleness and marriage 
and divorce to help God's people walk in wisdom in all of life's complexities. That's really our thesis statement for this this section. He has something for everyone to help us walk in wisdom through life's many complexities, whether you're single, married, divorced, or widowed, or anything in between, whatever the situation, Paul has counsel for, for us. And I was telling Son earlier this week, as I've been studying and reading and working through this material, uh, it's incredibly conf- convoluted at times because there's so much out there. And, and if you look through the centuries and different commentators and different periods in church history, they all have just the, the interpretation of these, some of these things is all over the place. And so it's very hard to distill down what is the overarching principle. If you could just pick it up and carry it and put it in your pocket, what is the one thing that this chapter is trying to communicate? And I think it boils down to this. If you were to say, well, what is Paul's instruction or what is the principle that he's applying to these issues of singleness and marriage and so forth? It is this, stay where you are with some exceptions. (laughs) (laughs) Stay where you are with some exceptions. The question they were wrestling is, what do we do now that we're disciples of Christ? Uh, Especially, particularly as it relates to marriage. And God's wisdom in response to that is, for most of you, not all, but most situations stay where you are. We see this in verse 17. He says, Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. Verse 24, Brethren, each one of you is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. So there is this principle, and I think this helps orient other things that he's saying in the chapter. That Christian discipleship, following Christ, is not grounds for throwing off marriage if you're married, nor does it necessitate going out and getting married if you're not. And he says in verse 27, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. In other words, stay where you are. Through Christ, you can glorify God in whatever station in life God has placed you. And that's important to understand. So we're going to break this text down into three parts this morning by the various groups that he's addressing. So the first group is in verses 8 and 9. He has something to say to the unmarried and widows. Something to say to the unmarried and widows. And you say, well, who are the unmarried? Um, You know, at first glance, that might be very obvious, but actually there's some debate. (laughs) There's actually quite a bit of debate over what group of people is Paul talking to? Um, some say that the unmarried, in verse 8, are, um, they are widowers. They are men who have had their marriages dissolved because their wife passed away. Uh, others have argued that he's singling out those who have been divorced. That means they're no longer married. Um, most likely women, but also could include men in that, in that heading as well. And some have argued that it's a general term that refers to anybody in the church who is not married. That includes widowers, it includes those who have been divorced, and it includes those who have never been married at all. And uh, in studying through this and thinking through the context and whatever, I would lean toward that third view, that the unmarried here are not a specific one or the other, but is a broad class of people. It includes widowers. So certainly there wasn't really a word for that. So that could definitely be the sort of full, or at least the primary emphasis. But I think he's also addressing men and women who are divorced and no longer married. And he could also very well be addressing those who are not married and never have been married. Um, One helpful study citing a number of ancient sources in the first century argues quite convincingly that in the upper crust of Roman society at that time and probably trickling down to the lower levels of society, a widow was expected to remarry within a year of losing their spouse and a divorcee was expected to remarry within six months. Um, This essay points out that the pressures on both men and women to remarry were driven by four major reasons. One, um, acquiring or, I guess, retaining property, 
um, having children, not less than three at that time. Uh, thirdly, leveraging your marriage or remarriage to sort of move you up the, in status on a cultural level. And, um, and then this, the, the harsh realities of the low life expectancy of women, uh, who, many of whom uh, had a high mortality rate because of childbirth. So the point is, though, in, in, is that the issue of whether to marry or not marry was probably a much bigger and more widespread concern for them than we would think about it in our context today. Um, for widowers and divorcees, they might have a lot of external pressure. They probably had more than we would have culturally today to, um, to get remarried and do that very, very quickly. Um, and we have to make... We have to be careful as we apply the scriptures and interpret the scriptures that we don't project our current present circumstances and culture onto the Bible. So we say, well, gee, being married, uh, unmarried isn't a big deal today, so it probably wasn't a big deal for them. Well, that's not necessarily true. And I think that some of the research that's been done would affirm that. Um, we don't, we, our job as, as the reader, as the interpreter coming to the text is to transport ourselves as best we can back to the original context to understand what we can understand. Sometimes you can do that with a little more certainty than others, but that's what we need to do. And what Paul's, I think what Paul's getting at here, understanding the culture in which they were operating is uh, offering a word to those who are unmarried, whether they are widows or widowers or divorcees or even those who are never married, he reminds them and tells them in verse 8, it is good to remain even as you are. It is good. For the first time, Paul articulates this principle, stay as you are. Stay as you are. There's no doubt Paul is not married at this point. He says it in verse 7. In chapter 9, verse 5, he points out that he... Uh, of. First Corinthians, he points out that the other apostles, not him, but the other apostles have a believing wife, um, which affirms that he does not have a wife at this point. Now, he was a Pharisee, so he probably was married at some point. As a Jewish person, you are expected to get married as a man, and as a Pharisee, it was required for you to be married. So we don't know what happened to his wife. Most likely, she passed away. Um, who knows? It's hard to be certain. But at this point, we know for sure he is not married. And, uh, and perhaps his singleness is what is throwing gas on this fire of controversy in the church because they see, well, Paul's single. He's celibate. We must, you know, and he's an apostle, so maybe we should do the same. Uh, and, we all tend, and we all do this. We mimic our spiritual heroes, even if we don't realize that we're doing that. We'll look at certain people and we'll say, oh, so-and-so uses this Bible translation, so you know, I want to use that Bible translation. Or so-and-so follows this method for sharing the gospel, so you know, I'm going to share the gospel the exact same way. Or so-and-so uses this reading plan in their devotion time, so that's, that's how I'm going to organize my Bible reading and intake. Um, and, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, Paul, I mean, well, Paul wrote Hebrews. But anyway, Paul says in Hebrews... <laughs> He says, listen, imitate those in the faith who are before you. And, and you know, consider their walk and imitate their faith. So it's not wrong to, to follow in the footsteps of those that we look up to spiritually. But we have to also understand that the way they do certain things that are not black and white in Scripture may be a way to do it, but not the way to do it. Um, so Paul's counsel here to stay as you are over and against that backdrop of the pressure they had at that time to get remarried or to get married in the first place, it makes his counsel in verse 8 very countercultural. This is radical in some ways. He's saying, listen, if you're single, that's good. That's okay. And if you're single, do not feel the need to run out and get remarried. But just as soon as he gives us the principle of stay as you are, in verse 9, he points to an exception. <laughs> in verse 9, he says, but, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. On the one hand, stay as you are. He says there's nothing wrong with being single. But, and he'll reiterate that at the end of the chapter, but 
On the other hand, he clearly recognizes that isn't, isn't for everybody. It may not be for everyone. And it's not something that he can take that's true of his own life and elevate to the level of command for everybody else. So when might it be advisable to remarry or to get married in the first place? Well, verse 9 tells us, if they do not have self-control, let them marry. So the short answer is, if you're not able to bring your passions to heal, and you're not able to remain pure and celibate, that is a strong indication that you do not have a gift of singleness and that it might be better for you to remarry as soon as a wise opportunity presents itself. Now, that's not the only reason someone should get remarried or married in the first place. But Paul acknowledges that some people have such a strong desire for the companionship and the relational intimacy of marriage that to force themselves to remain single when they otherwise might get married would actually cause them greater distraction from God's priorities than the divided interest of being married, which he'll talk about later in the chapter. It'll be very difficult for a person to live a godly life serving the Lord with a clear conscience if they're continually consumed by desire. And if, even if that desire doesn't spill out into sin or immorality. And in a culture like Corinth, just like ours today, where immorality is pervasive, it can be especially difficult not to give into temptation over time. And so Paul says, if that's you, get married. Get married. But singleness is good. Don't rush out to get married just to do it. But if you want to be married with all the blessings of physical and relational oneness, and cutting yourselves off from that forever would lead to perpetual and overwhelming temptation, he says it is better that you go and get married. Now, that, the terminology better or best, that's wisdom. That requires, that's not black and white. That's gray. That requires insight and wisdom. That's why you say, that's why I said earlier, there's so much in this chapter that we would want to be black and white, but it's, it's very much gray. Should you get married? Should you remain single? It depends. It depends. Over the years, I've had the privilege of knowing dozens of widows and widowers whose spouses died, and they were perfectly content to go on serving the Lord with joy and faithfulness uh, and using their, their undistracted devotion to the Lord to serve him with, with great distinction. But I've also known a handful of men and women whose spouses died or left them, and they got remarried, and they went on to have wonderful Christ-honoring second marriages. It's not one size fits all. And that's his point. And we should never look down upon someone who chooses a different path than we would choose. We need to be careful. That's why he says in verse 7, back in verse 7, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. In other words, not everyone's going to be the same. So this is his instruction to the unmarried and especially probably that Widows. He's addressing widows. Second, Paul has something to say, more to say, to those who are married in verses 10 and 11. He says, But to the married I give instruction, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, as the husband should not divorce his wife. So, unlike in the previous section, Paul stresses but this is not his personal direction. It is his instruction communicated not from his own spirit-filled life, but from Jesus himself. That's his point. He's quoting what Jesus taught, and we see Jesus teach this um, in Mark and Matthew and other places in the Gospels. So we, have, we know what the Lord teaches on this, and he's just saying this is, um, this is what the Lord says. Paul has in view here in verses uh, 10 and 11, marriage, marriages where both partners are Christians. That's who he's talking to here. He says the wife of a Christian marriage should not divorce her husband. Likewise, a husband in a Christian marriage should not divorce his wife. 
And again, we need to understand the context in which Paul's writing. In that day, divorce and remarriage was extremely common. It wasn't conservative in any way, shape, or form. Uh, uh, Seneca is a name you may have heard through ancient history and Stoic philosopher, statesman. He actually, we have um, quotations from him speaking tenderly of his wife, Paulina, whom he was married to for many years, and he describes in his writing that infidelity is one of the greatest evils of our time. He said that in the first century. The fact that she, his wife, was so devoted to him and he was so devoted to her, that was so unusual. It was not the norm. He wrote, quote, Few women seem to blush at divorce, and many reckon their years by the number of their husbands. They leave home in order to marry, he said, and marry in order to divorce. Similarly, a near contemporary of Paul, a Stoic thinker and writer by the name of Musonius Rufus, praises a wife's stable marriage for its rarity and its uniqueness. And Tacitus, who was a Roman historian and politician, records in the first century that divorce in the Julio-Claudian period in the time of Nero, which is around when this was written, maybe a little bit before, was, uh, uh, divorce was so widespread and so readily invoked for any number of reasons, it could have been as petty as things as increasing one's social standing or simply personal taste. Need a new wife. Need a new husband. So divorce was extremely common. Under Jewish, Greek, and Roman law, a husband could divorce his wife for almost any reason whatsoever. And under Greek and Roman law, divorce could be initiated by either party, both men or women. And on top of that, you have, as he describes earlier, husbands, believing husbands and wives, who were cutting themselves off physically from their spouse, thinking that's what Christian maturity demanded, and when you put all that together with the culture, you realize you've got a real mess on your hands because there's an opportunity and a cultural pressure to just get rid of your spouse and move on. And so Paul's instruction here is simple and it's radical. He says, stay married to your spouse. And takes into, if you take into consideration the previous verses, he says, fulfill your duty to your spouse in physical intimacy. But again, just as soon as he gives that instruction, he recognizes that there are some who have disobeyed the Lord in this already. In fact, the, the language of verse 11, the, the, the context and the grammar indicate that what he's saying here is not someone that could do this, but someone who already has been divorced, verse 11. He recognizes that, that if you've already been divorced, he says and you've done that for the wrong reasons, you should remain unmarried or, if possible, be reconciled to your spouse. So God's design for marriage is one man and one woman for life. One man and one woman for life. You say, well, what's, what about the exceptions in Scripture? Because Scripture talks about uh, death. What if your spouse dies? Or what, what if... Um, what, what if your spouse cheats on you? What if they commit immorality? What if they leave you? We're going to learn about that in verses 15 and 16. To that, I would say just be patient. We'll get there. Paul's not contradicting Jesus. He's not even contradicting himself. He's simply driving home a much-needed point. This is not a comprehensive dissertation on divorce. He is addressing a group of believers who need to be reminded to adopt God's serious posture about marriage and God's ideal. He's trying to help them understand what God expects of them. And that's something we need to do as well. Marriage is a serious, lifelong covenant that, that holds forth the mystery of the gospel to a dark and dying world. Unbelievers don't understand that their marriages do that, but we do as Christians. And as such, we should enter into marriage circumspectly with a generous dose of godly counsel. And if we are married, you should do everything in God's capacity to build up and strengthen that marriage. 
And you should strive to persevere by God's grace through the inevitable hard times that the Lord will bring into your life. And they will come. At the same time, he understands that divorce happens. And in some situations, may even be unavoidable. And so God's ideal may not be reality. Which is why he says what he says in verse 11 and what he's going to say in verses 15 and 16. So, I said, so again, a lot of this comes back to not black and white, but it depends. It depends. So Paul has something to say to the unmarried and widows. He has something to say to Christian husbands and wives to help them walk through all of life's complexities. But what if your husband or wife is not a Christian? Well, he has something to say to you as well. And that's the third part of our outline this morning. Paul has something to say to those who's married, who are married to those their spouse is not a Christian. In verse 12, he says, But to the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Now, again, the term, the rest, uh, here he means those who are not joined together in a Christian marriage because it's, it's about the only group he hasn't addressed. Uh, it's kind of a process of elimination. Some Christians in the church were married uh, to unbelievers, and that could have happened for a number of reasons. It could be because they both uh, were married before either one of them were Christians, and one got saved and the other one didn't. It could be because one professed faith in Christ and fell away. It could be because they went against good counsel and they married the person not knowing or maybe not caring, and so now they're married and their spouse is not a Christian. Whatever the circumstances, it doesn't really matter. Paul is simply pointing out here in these verses that marriages in this context are on a unique footing. So what do you do in a situation like that? For Paul, everything hinges on the attitude of their unbelieving partner. If the unbelieving wife is willing, agrees with, to continue the marriage and live with them, the brother shouldn't divorce her. In the exact similar language, Paul instructs the Christian wife married to an unbelieving husband not to divorce him if he's agreeable to continue. Now, Greek and Roman law allowed women to divorce their husbands uh, pretty much as easily and for any reason, uh, just like uh, men could do. But Jewish law did not. In fact, only a husband could initiate divorce under Jewish custom at that time. But again, most of this church is probably Gentile. There are certainly Jews among them, but most of them are probably Gentiles. And Paul gives a powerful defense and, and reason in verse 14 for why you Christians should not give up or press uh, eject in your marriage if your husband or wife is not a Christian. And he tells us in verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. See, your having been set apart to God as a Christian means that your marriage to your spouse is in no way defiling or destructive to your spiritual life or the spiritual life of your family. On the other hand, that you're, your having been sanctified uniquely purifies and builds up your spouse and your children, which is just an amazing thought. There are temporal, the point he's making here, there are temporal blessings, not salvation blessings, but real, tangible, immediate spiritual blessings that flow out from your fellowship with God. And those blessings don't just terminate on you as, an un, as a believer. They spill out into others in your household. It's true for your spouse and it's true for your children. At the end of verse 14, he says, listen, your children, if neither one of you are Christians, they would be unclean. 
But now he says they are holy. So you might ask, well, in what sense is Paul using that term holy? Because when, when you think a person is holy, you think they're saved, right? That's, that's how you kind of connect that. When, when the Bible speaks about someone being holy, you, you would think that they're saved. So is Paul saying in verse 14 that our spouse is saved or our children are saved because I'm a Christian? Of course, that's not what he's teaching here. Salvation is by grace, and it is through faith alone, in Christ alone. And God doesn't forgive the sins of households. He forgives the sins of individuals. Every individual heart is guilty before God, and every individual heart must come to faith in him in order to be saved. So he's not talking about salvation being kind of blanketed over the house as a whole. So in what way is Paul using this term holy in verse 14 if he's not talking about salvation? For that, I invite you to look with me back in Romans chapter 11 for a second because I think Paul uses the term similarly and it helps us understand what he says here in our text. Romans 11 and look at verse 16. In this section, Paul is speaking about Israel and their continued place within God's purposes and covenant plan. And he speaks about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And he speaks of their relationship to the subsequent generations that followed after them. And Paul says in verse 16, If the first piece of the dough is holy... The lump is also, and if the root is holy, the branches are too. So, as Paul's writing this, Israel, as a whole, has rejected the gospel. They have refused to see Jesus as the Messiah. They refuse to see him as the Son of God, to trust in him in that way. They refuse to acknowledge that his death and resurrection was sufficient for the forgiveness of their sins. So, at this point, he's not talking about Israel as if they're saved, but yet he still calls them holy. And the reason he says the first piece and the root are holy, that is because Abraham and his descendants, Isaac and Jacob, according to the promise, were set apart to God, then therefore they are holy. And that term holy has the idea of set apart, unique. To God. Israel, though still blinded unbelief, is nonetheless set apart in a special sense then, just as they are today. So the consecration or the setting apart of the first portion is in some enduring and prevailing sense consecrates and sets apart the whole. That's what he's getting at. And so he's saying, precisely because Israel belongs to God in this special sense, that Paul magnified his gospel ministry in such a way among the Gentiles that he hoped that they would eventually come to faith. And he paints this picture in the preceding verses. He says, if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them, for if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, meaning that the Gentiles hear the gospel, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So what we have here is a group of people, unbelieving Israel, who are called holy, but they're not saved. Nevertheless, their connection to the root of the tree as a branch confers meaningful temporal blessing. So Paul is setting forth, if we go back to our text, Paul is setting forth a high and hopeful view of God's grace at work through you, Christian, in your home. And your spiritual influence is solid ground for building into your marriage. Even if your spouse is not a Christian. I was trying to think of an analogy that would be helpful. If you think about a car... And a, and a wheel. A wheel is secured to the car with a lug nut. right? And that lug nut is t 
is tightened down with a, a tremendous amount of tension force. In some way, and this is not a perfect analogy, you, you're, you're the lug nut. And the force, the tension force of Christ in you, in your home, holds the wheels on the car such that the wheels don't go off the bus. <laughs> so the, t- the tension force of a lug nut does not make the car go. It, doesn't, it certainly isn't going to hold the whole car together in the end. But what it does is it keeps the, the wheels from coming off <laughs> as you drive around and live life. And I think that can be a helpful analogy. In God's eyes, your household is set apart for himself. When you, as a husband, are you or you as a wife, are living faithfully as a Christian before them in your home. Your home is enormously superior to one without any gospel witness. So much better. You know, in, in, um, I grew up in Florida, and we used to get a lot of tropical storms and hurricanes, and we'd lose the power for several days at a time. And um, it's just amazing to me, you forget how much... Um, electricity kind of always being there in the background, how much uh, light that distributes through the home, whether it's a night light or, you know, lights on the fridge or lights under the stove or whatever. But when the power's gone, the lights are out and it's dark, so dark. And I just remember we always had, you know, like a a few flashlights or a few lanterns. And when it got dark, you walk around the house if you just turned one light on in the house, it was like, whoa, you know? It's like, without it, you couldn't see anything. But with just one lamp, one small light, one small flashlight, it throws so much light through the house, you can see all the details and everything. And I think that's the picture that Paul's painting here. Even if you're ridiculed, even if you're persecuted, even if your spouse and your children have no interest in the things of the Lord, you are a light in your home. And your family is blessed because you are there. One Christian home showers grace on the whole home. Just a really powerful defense and argument by Paul for the importance of doing everything in your power to live at peace. Paul has something to say to the unmarried. He has something to say to the married. He has something to those in mixed marriages where the spouse wants to stay. He has one more group he needs to address. And that is those who's in a mixed marriage where their spouse is not a Christian, but that Christian doesn't want to live with them anymore. And for that, we need to wait until next Sunday because there's so much here to be unpacked. But just by way of kind of conclusion, turn with me back to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19. The Pharisees, large crowd had come. The Pharisees sought to test Jesus, verse 3 says, and asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Because that was the prevailing attitude of the day. And Jesus goes on to point out God's ideal. He says, no, they made them male and female from the beginning. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're not two, but one. And what God has joined together, let no man separate. And, um, and he points out here uh, that uh, they come back and say, well, Jesus, Paul, Moses said that uh, we could actually write a certificate, certificate of divorce. And Jesus said, because of your hardness of heart, Mo, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, wow, <laughs> if the relationship of a man with his wife is like that, it's better not to get married at all. Right? If, I, if, this is, if that's what God wants, it's probably better if we didn't even bother in the first place. And, um, but Jesus responds, his response is interesting in verse 11. He says, not all men can accept that statement, this statement. 
but only those to whom it has been given. It's important to understand that no matter what situation you find yourself in, married, unmarried, widowed, divorced, your spouse is not a Christian, you're only able to glorify Christ and stay as you are in Christ's capacity. I think that's what he's getting at in verse 11. It is only to those to whom it has been given. In other words, it requires something outside of yourself to do this. To be single, it requires something outside of yourself. To be married, it requires something outside of yourself. That's why he says it's, it's a gift. Only some can accept this. Even if you, have, you are married, persevering in faithfulness to your spouse requires God's capacity. John 15, we saw it. Jesus said, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself until it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. God's word has to richly dwell within us, and you must cling to him in simple, childlike faith if you will ever be able to bring forth the fruits of obedience. Fruits of obedience in singleness, fruits of obedience in marriage, it does not matter. It requires God's grace in us. And that is both difficult and achievable. It can be done. And that's what we need to understand. As Paul is giving all of this counsel, he is pointing them, behind all of it is this understanding that God is at work in you to do these things. Wherever the Lord has you, we must stay where we are, with some exceptions. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and your counsel, which guides us into all the truth. We say the Spirit gives testimony to you. It, it takes those things which you have said and embosses them on our hearts so that we might live them out and obey them. We pray, Lord, that you would help us as a church to have marriages that glorify you, marriages that honor Christ and hold forth the mystery of the gospel. And if we're not married, that we would live lives of devotion and faithfulness to you and serve you with great joy, knowing that we don't have to divide our attention between uh, a husband or a wife or, or um, anything else. And if, and, if we're, and if we're not married anymore, that uh, we don't have to rush out and go get married, that we can be perfectly content and serve you in that way and, and not in any, in any way, shape, or form be less effective in, in our walk with you. And, and if our spouse is in a Christian, there's still something uh, that we can be doing to uh, be a, advancing the gospel purposes in our home and and bringing blessing to our children, to our spouse. Um, we just thank you that you're a God of understanding, that you're a God of compassion, the scripture says. You're a God of mercy. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand these things and walk in wisdom in them, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, Visit us online at CascadesBibleChurch.com.